throughout this play, Tagore is playing, is, is essentially rethinking what it means to, to, be, to be dying, to be in that process of, of dying and what it means to then be in community as you're going through that. Um, and, you know, I think what we find in Amal is someone who has an exceptional amount of dignity as he's going through this process. Uh, and, and so, you know, I think that is a play, therefore, that would appeal greatly to Janusz Korczak, who is thinking about ways for his children to cultivate their imagination. Welcome to Warfare of Art and Law the podcast that focuses on how justice does or doesn't play out when art and law overlap. Hi everyone, it's Stephanie, and that was author Jai Chakrabarty discussing the Bengali play The Post Office by Rabindranath Tagore. In the following conversation, Mr. Chakrabarty discusses how that Bengali play came to be performed during World War II in the Warsaw Ghetto and how he uses the compelling facts of that performance, along with the Tagore play, to weave together a compelling debut historical fiction novel entitled, A Play for the End of the World. Jai Chakrabarty, welcome to Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so very much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Would you start with giving an overview of your book, A Play for the End of the World, and how you came to write the story? Sure. A Play for the End of the World was inspired by a Rabindranath Tagore play that was performed in the Warsaw Ghetto in 1942 and originally written in India in a small village in 1911. And I wanted to understand why this particular Bengali play would be performed in the Warsaw Ghetto and what art meant in that time and in that place of such darkness. And I explored this question through Yarek Smith, who is a survivor of Janusz Korczak's orphanage, a fictional survivor, I should say, of Janusz Korczak's orphanage. And Janusz Korczak was a notable educator in Poland at the time and ran an orphanage. And so through Jarek Smith, we follow not only the story in Poland as it happens in 1942, but a story that unfolds 30 years later in India when Jarek stages the play again, uh, but this time in a leading directorial role for a village in India. Tagore's reasoning for writing this play, what, what's your understanding of that? So in this case, Tagore himself wrote about some of the symbolism that's involved in this play. And, you know, we have his interpretations about it. And, and just to briefly describe the play, it's about a young child by the name of Amal who has some unspecified terminal illness uh, and that keeps him indoors. So he's quarantined um, throughout this play and he can only have an interaction through his window with other children. And sometimes there are visitors who come to him. Um, And for Tagore, he was interested in exploring the imagination of a child and thinking about 
also what is the afterlife. Uh, so for Tagore, this notion of um, reincarnation was really important. So he believed that the end from a corporeal standpoint for Amal wasn't in fact the end for his story, so that there would be you know, this life beyond the one in which Amal was um, was going to die, you know, that his soul would carry on. So that was an important part of Tagore's religious philosophy. And he has, uh, in, in, this, in this play, Amal has an interaction with uh, the king and his physician and his messenger. And so for Tagore, those were religious symbols. You know, he was thinking about um, the king really as a kind of godlike figure that Amal was communing with. So For Korchak, I think India was probably a very far away place, you know, and so he, he was able to get his kids to put on costumes, to enact what it might have been like to be in India at the time, but also it gave them this idea of um, a dignified death and what it might mean to have an afterlife, um, which Janusz Korczak was also interested in, this idea of a life after after this one. My understanding is there were not any survivors of uh, Korczak's orphanage, correct? There were no survivors at the time that the Germans came to take the 192 children and staff from Korczak's orphanage. There are survivors from other periods who were part of Korchak's orphanage and had left already who were able to tell the story of Janusz Korchak, but none at the time that the Germans came in August of 1942. Were memoirs from those survivors who left before the end of the orphanage, was that part of your resource material for describing the inner workings of the orphanage? Absolutely. Yeah, they were. They gave me a great sense of what it was to live in that orphanage, to find community and who Janusz Korczak was, not only as an educator. I mean, he's a prominent figure of the time, but but also just as a human being. Could you give a few, um, if you recall any off the top of your head, a few of the memoirs that you read in that context? Um, there's one that's called The Last Korchak Boy, and it's I'm it's by an artist who then emigrated to Israel. Um, and I'm forgetting his name right now, but that's that's the title of the book that comes to mind. Yeah. The injustices that are going on in uh, 1942 Warsaw, how were those dealt with using this 
play uh, by Tagore? So in 1942 in Warsaw, there was not only the injustices of deprivation and all of the physical suffering that was being inflicted on the Jewish community. There was also a, you know, the psychological suffering that was um, so notable during that time. And going back to this idea of cultivating imagination and thinking of imagination as almost a kind of tool or even as a kind of weapon to uh, to use in protest, I think that was really key for Janusz Korczak and to find a play that could be performed where you are able to bring together communities. So much of Jewish Warsaw came to witness the performance of that play on July 18th, 1942, um, I think those are transgressive acts, you know, and uh, I think the, yeah, the way in which art is performed there is is notable in that way. Contrasting that with the way uh, you have portrayed this same play being uh, performed in 1970s India, would you kind of give a, a glimpse into how you've done that? Sure. So I would describe the way in which it was performed in 1942 as fundamentally a way in which art uplifts a community and helps the community to come together in protest. And I wanted to, I was that art can also, uh, the same piece of art can be used in many different ways and can be used to exploit and manipulate And so 30 years later in India, what we see through some political uh, Machiavellian connections is that there is also this element of exploitation and manipulation. And so while there there are positive intentions, there's also these darker strains that I wanted to explore as we got into the India section 30 years later. The wellspring that Tagore was, I heard you say that you didn't imagine yourself taking on him or his work. And I was curious what kind of shift happened for you to be able to explore this play in such a broad way. I think the way that I tricked myself, you know, and I should just say that, I mean, like Tagore is such a, was such an influence, not for me, um, but I think is such a, monumental figure to anyone who uh, grows up in India and particularly in Bengal, you know, you're memorizing his poetry, you're reading his stories, novels, etc. But I think the way that I trick myself is that I thought of this not as a Tagore story per se, but really something that was inspired by one one piece of his art and how that art was then connected into a much larger tapestry. And so for me, it's, it's not a, you know, it's not a exploration of Tagore's work and its, and its grandeur and its largesse, but really just one moment of cultural connection um, that allowed me to, to get deeper into this work. One of the themes that I was really curious about that 
is in your book, I believe, is this intergenerational trauma. So I was curious about where you wanted to go with that. So this is, you know, in in my research, um, when I talked with survivors, and I should, you know, say that my wife's grandmother was a survivor of Auschwitz. So she was someone who was an inspiration for me for this book. When I talked with survivors or read their stories, it became clear to me that the trauma that they had endured was also a trauma that then was carried on through their families. And it's something that I see in my larger extended family today. So it was a subject that I wanted to explore. And from a research perspective, um, I would also call out the work of Bessel van der Kolk here, The Body Keeps the Score, and Rabbi Firestone's work on intergenerational Jewish trauma in particular. Um, So where I was going with that is, you know, is this idea that Yes, we do carry this trauma that it, that it shapes us, but that we also have an opportunity to live our lives, to live deep, deeply fulfilling and meaningful lives, even with this trauma, even though it remains with us, that we find ways, we can find ways to um, make really whole and solid lives for ourselves. And so I wonder, uh, when you were mentioning also before about the way this book has developed, I believe it was over a decade, were uh, were there certain assumptions about intergenerational trauma or or other aspects of this book that shifted and, and grew over the course of your writing? Yes. Uh, so one of the assumptions that I made is that uh, – the gravity of this book, the center of gravity, if you will, would be drawn toward the story in 1942, because that that trauma is uh, such an important part of human history. And how could I, you know, write a story that went beyond that? But as I continue to revise, I began to understand that the story that I wanted to tell was actually the after story to that. Um, And it was how someone who had survived that experience might then go on and live their life and try and find meaning. So that involved a pretty major revision and thinking less about 1942 as the kind of cornerstone of the novel and more about the front story, which in this case is 30 years later in the early 1970s and what unfolds in India and New York as kind of the primary story. When you were doing the research for the different aspects of uh, Warsaw, India, as well as 1970s New York, did you find yourself doing research as you were writing or was a large portion of that done before you began? A large portion of the Warsaw research was done before I began, although there were certainly things that I learned along the way and continue to learn as I have interactions with book clubs, etc. I 
would say the New York part, uh, I definitely did much later in the writing of the novel. I think I had a degree of, I don't know, um, false confidence that being a New Yorker, someone who'd spent most of their adult life living in New York City, that I would have some idea about New York in the 1970s. It turns out that this is just not true. You really need to do research about New York in the 1970s. So that happened later for me in in the novel's writing. And um, India, you know, I, I did most of that research before, but I continued to find connections uh, as I wrote, wrote the novel for example, Jhumpalahiri's The Lowland, which is about the Naxalite revolution, is a book that I read much later in the revision process. Um, so there were those sort of moments that came, uh, but I would say a lot of the Indian Poland research was done earlier on. Several of the authors that I believe you'd referenced, uh, Holocaust survivors, uh, are collected in Art from the Ashes. And I was curious if there were other collections that you had read about from that era. So that's that's a collection by Lawrence Langer. I think that is one of the best collections and it has um, poetry, it has short stories, it has memoir excerpts. Uh, and I, that's the one that I would recommend that folks begin with. For your character journaling process was that something that is also i I, i've heard you say that part of your practice is to journal and then write at some point in your morning routine did you also journal greatly before you started writing so my morning practice typically is that i will set a timer for 10 minutes to do um automatic journaling in a character's voice. And so this will be the character that I'm writing about that morning before I actually sit down to write the prose, the actual text. Um, and, and no, I didn't do a ton of journaling before. Um, I, I do have a series of questions that I ask my characters but those evolve, um, you know, there's kind of a baseline set of questions. But as I come to learn more about my characters, some questions make more sense than others. And some are just more meaningful as I get to know them. So I would say it's mostly an incremental process. And it, it, that journaling helps me get in the headspace. Yeah. Are there a few examples? I've heard you say that one of your questions was... Um... What's your, I think it's your superpower. Is there, is there one or two others that uh, you find were especially helpful? One question uh, that I found was really helpful for Yarek, who is one of the main characters in this novel, is uh, this question around if your friends and family are, you know, writing your obituary, obituary what are they and in that question, as it relates to Yarek, I began to understand that for him, a sense of legacy was really important. So this is someone who was, of course, a child in Janusz Korczak's orphanage, and Janusz Korczak left behind such an enormous impact um, on the world. 
And for Yarek, it was important in some way to pay it forward and to give back as Korchak had done. But that wasn't obvious to me uh, earlier on in the writing of this novel, because Yarek is someone who lives a very quiet life, has a very regular and rhythmic routine. Um, but that question, and as I started to write the answer for that, helped me realize that actually for him, legacy is really important. And the reader feedback that you've received, how has that been? And, uh, and any examples of surprises that you've received from the feedback? It's been uh, really great to get all sorts of feedback and questions and connections. And, um, you know, some of it has been as mundane as uh, did granola exist in the early 1970s? Um, and in fact, the answer is yes, it did. <laughs> um, and, and some of it has been around uh, the characters themselves. You know, I think it's been interesting to to find how readers view the two main characters. Um, so there's Yark, whom I've talked about, and then there's Lucy and a woman from the American South. And, uh, you know, some readers uh, view Lucy in, in a sort of a negative way, I've, I've found. Um, and so that's been a little bit of a surprise for me uh, because they're, I guess, more attached to Yarek. And uh, there's a, you know, without giving too much away, there's something of a conflict that happens in the novel uh, between the two of them. And that's been interesting to discover how, in some cases, they take sides. What about the value of art? Have you heard from any readers where their personal uh, opinion about how art is used or valued during times of conflict? So folks have shared with me how um, art was meaningful to them. Uh, so in particular, these are uh, children of or growing up, you know, in their household and how music or painting became something that felt like a bomb that became like a communal healing practice. Um, so, so that stands out in particular. Um, yeah, yeah, from the reader feedback thus far. Feedback that I'd heard was uh, uh, another Tagore poem that had been translated into a song in Warsaw. And I assumed it was during the World War II era, but I don't know that. So I was curious which poem and, and what, if, any, if there were any more details about that. Yeah, sure. So this is uh, in Yiddish. It's farbos. It's uh, um, is what it's called, and it was uh, from a songbook that was um, uh, found in Warsaw in the 1930s. So this was a song that was sung in in Warsaw, and Tagore would have been relatively well known to. Warsaw intelligentsia at the time he'd won the Nobel Prize um, in the 19 teens. So, so, so he would have been a known figure. And um, 
But that poem uh, that was turned into a song was something that was sent to me by a friend, Marsha Gilden, you know, who had read the book and then made this connection. Um, so it was a really wonderful way in which uh, I felt like I learned something new that, you know, even after doing all these years of research, that a moment of cross-cultural connection came to me and um, I learned something more about that time period. For the dual timelines that we've been talking about here, uh, were there challenges that you came across when trying to bring those dual timelines together? So I think there are the logistical challenges of writing dual timelines, which is just keeping things um, together and all the dates and time periods and characters and so forth I, you know, I think beyond that, it's really about what are the thematic connections. And for a novel where it was important for me to have a rich front story. So in other words, as I mentioned earlier, that I didn't want it, want the 1942 material to consume too much of the story. It was important for me to think about, well, what are the thematic connections and why am I dipping back into the past as opposed to writing in the present story? So for each occurrence that I did go into the past, um, I felt it had to have weight and significance and had to move the characters forward and help us understand them more deeply. Uh, otherwise, you know, um, I think there's a real risk that that timeline could have consumed the book. When you were doing the revisions, were there patterns that you saw and you pulled out more or um, that you chose to put more emphasis on? I would say it was more that I found that there were certain scenes from the past that were repeated in some way. So in other words, there was thematic repetition or what they indicated from a character development point of view felt like it had already been addressed in the front story. So it was more about cutting away those pieces and letting the front story do more work rather than going back into the past and uh, because we, you know, as as readers, we know kind of how that story ends, you know, um, so that I think spending too much time in those sections would have been, uh, would have slowed the book down. Is there a certain scene that you would uh, want to uh, just paint for the listeners that uh, would perhaps be the one that most resonates with you? The scene that I spent the most time revising was the uh, scene that involves an escape from the train to Treblinka. So in that scene, we get a few different versions of his memory, of Yarick's memory, and how he views that moment of trauma of letting go from his chosen family and it was one in which I felt like the poetry of, of that and the choice of words were really important to me. Like I wanted to do justice to that scene. So um, that was the one that I 
yeah, I spent the most time on and, and certainly connect the most with. Do you see this book? Uh, and actually, I was thinking about this from different perspectives uh, because I, my, my awareness of Tagore is very limited. And so this has revived his work for me. And so I wondered on some level if you had uh, seen this book as uh, perhaps historical justice for him, but also for those that are in the book. I have been really happy to know that this book has brought Tagore back or uh, new to to some readers. I, I think that um, it's difficult because he hasn't gotten a lot of great English translations to be to be perfectly honest, but that uh, you know he was ahead of his time in in many ways in writing about social issues and in how he bridged uh, Bengali literature and European modernism and the humanism of the time. So I'm really happy that some people are finding him again. Um, you know, I think such a seminal figure, certainly in, in my life. But yes, I'm, I'm really glad of it. Are there translations of his work that you would recommend or certain uh, certain works of his that you would point people to if they have not read any of his work? So I love his short stories. Uh, there's a collected short stories of Tagore that I think is published by Penguin. Um, and in terms of his novels, my favorite Tagore novel is Korebaire, which is translated as, um, I think, A Home in the World. Would you have any advice to offer writers who are taking on a dual timeline historical novel and uh, any novel for that matter, but certainly uh, an example of uh, dual timeline historical novels, any recommendations of books that influenced you and any advice for those trying to do that? A couple of books that influenced me, firstly, The Foreign, a Foreign Student by Susan Choi, uh, which follows a Korean uh, in the South and then also goes back to uh, a period of war and trauma that he endured. And the blend that I mentioned earlier by Chumpa Lahiri, which has one timeline with um, the Naxalite revolution in the late 1960s in India, and then present day or contemporary America. Those are two that were um, influences for me, at least in the revision process of this novel, and I think are both really excellent books. Um, As far as advice goes for writing dual timeline novels, you know, I think it's... um, This is going to be super nuts and bolts, uh, but I think it's really helpful to have a system 
to keep track of all the dates, places, times, and characters. Uh, I did not have such a system early on, and I wish I did. It would have saved me a lot of pain and headache. So, um, you know, there are different ways to do this. I now have what I think is a relatively sane way of doing it, um, but really to find for yourself a way that will avoid that pain and headache if you're doing a dual timeline novel. And had you uh, always known that you would start writing novels or uh, was it sort of a surprise to you when you came across this story that the seed was planted? I love short fiction. I, I would say that I naturally tend to gravitate more towards writing short stories. But when I came across this historical uh, uh, narrative of Janusz Korczak and Rabindranath Tagore, I felt like there is no way that it could fit into a short story and that it really needed the space and time of a novel. And so I think it really depends on the idea and how much space that it takes the novel that I'm working on now. I feel this are even 10,000 words. And, and so it's really about those ideas and doing them justice in the space that they need. I've heard you say that, uh, that art can be used as a new language to imagine uh, transformation, I believe. And so I wondered um, if you saw that kind of potential with this work of yours or any of your prior works as um, helping to facilitate justice. I, I think I have more humble aims for my own work. Um, I, I, I will say, though, that, uh, you know, we're speaking the day after the death of Archbishop Desmond Tutu, and so I've been thinking a lot about how the music of Miriam Makeba and Hugh Masekela and so many others during that time were crucial to allowing for social change to ending apartheid. And I think that, you know, each piece of art that we create allows us to have the conditions by which social change can, can happen. So I would think that, you know, my book perhaps is part of a larger continuum of books that think about social change and uh, political movement. There's a line in the novel where it says that the war for independence and revolution was covered by the New York Times, but mostly on page 12, and it's sort of a pithy line. And, you know, one of my hopes for readers who pick up my book is that for them, it goes from page 12, at least for a moment, to, to the front page through, you know, what is, uh, what are complex, large conflicts, moments of trauma, as a tool for and they have empathic connections my, my to characters and can therefore have to him, so a I'd larger awareness of what was happening in those moments. The way he did it, and or any other by doing so, can then think about how they would want to interface with similar moments that are happening today and will happen in the future again. Who was a playwright who performed plays in India in the 1960s and 1970s. And uh, Hashmi would perform plays in 
the streets of Delhi and in the countryside. And his his act were day laborers who worked in factories. And the aim of his plays was to advocate for changes to their situation, um, to advocate for improved wages and better conditions. And so that becomes a kind of art that is very rooted into day-to-day experiences of people. And I want to bring that example in because I feel like, you know, Tagore was very much wrestling with social change. But here is an example of someone who was also wrestling with social change, but doing it in a very um, direct way and bringing in the people who were most affected to be the performers in that situation. There will be a link in the show notes to learn more. If you enjoyed this podcast, it would be much appreciated if you could leave a rating or review and tag Warfare of Art and Law Podcast. You can also email your comments to Stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com. Until next time, this is Stephanie Drotty bringing you Warfare of Art and Law. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. What are your plans for the second Saturday of this month? Perhaps consider joining in for a discussion about art, culture, and social issues. Hi, everyone. It's Stephanie. And every second Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, I host the Second Saturday Art and Justice Gathering, an online call that explores a range of topics from artists who might inspire to legal decisions that might infuriate all with the aim of sparking dialogue about social justice and promoting creative thinking. If interested, please email me at stephanie at warfareofartandlaw.com.